0: Hello and welcome to the BICOM podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of BICOM, and today's episode is based on a briefing we held with Penina Shalvit-Bauch. So first of all, uh, Penina, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Um, by way of an introduction, Colonel Advocate Penina Shalvit-Bauch served in the International Law Department of the Military Advocates General Office. She headed the department for five years um, during the last round that we had a major conflict here in Israel, that is uh, the, the, uh, the Lebanon War of 2006. So I think her uh, insights from that time will also be particularly valuable. But in that role as the lead um, military advocate general, she was advising senior IDF commanders, as well as the government, on a range of legal issues, including the, the, law, the laws of armed conflict. Following her retirement from the IDF, she works for the now excellent INSS, um, which I can recommend to everybody, and also serves as a lecturer in the Faculty of Law at Tel Aviv University. Pina, uh, perhaps we can, we can, you can open up and just kind of give us an assessment of, uh, of the state of play as you see it, and then we can get into some of the, uh, the legal issues as well.
1: Okay, so um, well, thank you uh, for inviting me. Um, I understand we have a very uh, distinguished uh, uh, group here of, uh, of journalists. Um, uh, and, and you mentioned that I was in the International Law Department, I was there from 1989 until 2009, I retired just after the cost-led operation. Um, during this time I was involved, as, as you said, uh, in uh, giving legal advice on operational issues, but I was also a member of all the um, um, Israeli delegations and the peace negotiations with the Palestinians, uh, what is called today the Oslo Accords, I was a legal advisor from uh, 93, actually, even from 91. I was involved, but from 93 in the Paris uh, Protocols of 94 and the interim agreement 95. And ever since then, uh, in the different rounds of negotiations, um, including on the disengagement. And after retiring, I continued um, to be involved in um, many attempts to uh, resolve the conflict, including um, through track two, uh, two Palestinians, um, so, so I'm also invest- I'm also uh, um, covering the angle or, or, or very close to the angle of of uh, the conflict at large, and not only on the operational issues. And I want to start there because I think um, that one thing that I feel. Uh, um, we we're talking about the now, and but but the question, of course, is where are we're heading. I mean, what, what's 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 lying ahead, and and I'm, that's not the emphasis of my talk. But I do I do want to start with what I would like to see in the end, and what I would like to see in the end is a resolution of the conflict, is a two state solution. I belong, belong to the peace camp. I think the majority of Israelis still. I'm, I'm putting a question mark, but until recently, the majority of Israeli still believed in the two-state solution, although we have admittedly uh, um, uh, quite a um, uh, uh, big uh, uh, ideological right that oppose any such uh, solution and others on the right don't believe, uh, or maybe many that don't believe in such a solution. Uh, but uh, but this is uh, still with the way I think eventually we need to, to resolve the conflict. And I'm saying all this because um, I think what is very important uh, to acknowledge in this war that we are fighting with the Hamas is that this is not about a resolution of the conflict and that in essence, actually, if we don't manage to um, win this war, and I will talk about what this means to win this war, or I, I, I will put it differently. If we lose this war, if Hamas wins, um, then I think beyond this uh, threat to Israel, which I will talk to, uh, uh, it, it means that there will never be any, any peaceful resolution of the conflict. So, uh, And I think that's a point that needs to be stressed because um, in order to have a resolution of the conflict, you need, uh, with uh, again, with a two-state solution, to say side by side, Israel as nation national state of the Jewish people and the Palestinians with the Palestinian the Palestine with the Palestinians can have their uh, right of self-determination. Um, um, so f- for that you need, first of all, you need the state of Israel to exist, which is something that is a is an issue at the moment, and I will come to that. Um, but secondly, you need the Palestinians eh, on the other side to eh, accept that Israel is a reality, um, that it is here to stay um, and that they have to accept it. Um, and then that uh, pe- the Palestinians are ready to talk to Israelis and are ready to make some kind of concessions are, are have enough power to make these concessions and um so if the hamas wins the war nothing of this will happen i mean they might be after first of all a threat to israel itself but there will be also no possibility to have any palestinians make any kinds of concessions that are necessary to reach any kind of a uh, solution so um, and now I'm coming to the threat itself because I think what, what is different and I'm all the time asked, what is different now from all the other rounds of, uh, of uh, operations with, the, with Hamas and I was there in cost and since then we had a few more protective edge and others in 2014, it's a huge difference. I think this time uh, what the Hamas did, it uh, completely shattered Israel's uh, sense of security security of the people in Israel, uh, it showed itself to be a very dangerous enemy, more than just a nuisance on our southern border, but actually an enemy that can indeed uh, uh, enter uh, into the state of Israel, uh, conquer uh, military races, uh, over 20 uh, towns and villages, um, um, pose a a, a substantial threat that at the moment means that 120,000 Israelis from the south are, um, are internally displaced, cannot go back to their homes, either they are destroyed or it's too dangerous. So this is shaking completely Israel. If is, the rockets that are fired, that mean that we are not, the children are not going to school, the whole country is at the shutdown, or almost, now we're opening up a bit. And also we have this, um, um, I would say pact, this axis, uh, that it's not only the Hamas, it's this axis with Iran, and of course, the Hezbollah and the other Shia proxies, we have we had missiles fired from Yemen and uh, attempts from and also from, the, from Syria, from the Shia groups there, including UAVs. And also, of course, Hezbollah, that in the meantime, it's not a full-fledged, very high-level war, but it could develop to that. We have all the time uh, now, every day, there's uh, uh, also a uh, uh, fighting on the northern border. So this could develop into uh, uh, Israel fighting on all its borders. In the West Bank, there are attempts for also, there's Hamas uh, is very popular, and there's, uh, there are terrorists there that belong to the Hamas. This is a threat from all our borders. And this is important to understand when we analyze what Israel is doing. Uh, and I think without taking this into account, uh, the analysis to me seems um, a little um, un. Uh, well, I won't give it marks, but I think it, it should take into account this reality. Um, so now, what is Israel doing? So Israel's aim in this attack, in this say, war, is to dismantle the military capabilities of Hamas, potentially to dismantle also its uh, ability to to continue to control Gaza as a, as a, um, to govern Gaza. Um the idea that Hamas will completely disappear and nobody will really the ideas of Hamas will disappear, I don't think are realistic. But we do want the Hamas not to be to, to be to control Gaza Street anymore, at the end of this war, and not and and more specifically and militarily, not to pose a military threat to Israel, to eliminate military capabilities to at least to the to the level that they cannot pose a, a, a military threat against Israel. Another important, again, a, a component of what is happening now, is that we have to um, restore Israel's um, deterrence against our other enemies. Because our other enemies, as I said, are waiting to see if Israel is perceived as weak, uh, they will come in for the kill. And then we will have these fronts from all sides. So this is, I'm not being dramatic, it is an existential war in Israel. So. In, in other conflicts, there was always some in Israel said, you're doing too much, and there was criticism in the government, there's no such thing in Israel. Today, I think over 90% of Israelis, this includes the Israeli Arabs, by the way, which is interesting, all support the war and the, and the, and the war effort. They all support the fact that we cannot live with the Hamas um, on our border. And I think beyond the issue of this threat, that what happened on the 7th of October was also so shocking in its uh, in the cruelty that made us understand that these are people that, that do not view us as human. And I'm not going to get into the descriptions, you've probably heard them, but I, I've been following and, and I can't sleep at night, you know, because every time I by mistake open some kind of testimony of p- babies that heads were cut up and tortured, and children that were raped in front of their parents and all these horrific things, all the all the torture that people suffered before being killed not just coming and killing people or, or kidnapping people. So that's, and now, okay, so what do you do? How do you do that? How do you get a, how do you, do you eliminate the military capabilities of the Hamas? So the only way is to attack the military capabilities of the Hamas until either they are not there anymore or until the Hamas decides to surrender, which is also an option, to surrender its military capabilities. Now, the problem here is, of course, as you know, that all the military capabilities of Hamas and the Islamic Jihad that is working together with the Hamas and also supported by Iran, that all the military capabilities are located within civilian buildings and underneath the civilian buildings with with a network of of tunnels that have been written about in all kinds of journals. So there's proof Um, And so Israel has to get to these tunnels and to to this military infrastructure. All of it is civilian objects, but legally, and here I come as a legal advisor, legally, according to the international uh, humanitarian law, the laws of armed conflict, when a civilian object is by its nature, location, purpose, or use contributes to the military effort of the other side, it becomes a lawful military objective. So what Israel is doing, it's Targeting these objectives, these are lawful military targets. Um, it's not targeting civilians. It's against our laws and orders that incorporate the inter- international humanitarian law, against the morality, and part of the until. A month and a half ago, we had the, all these protests also by reservists that said we are very, it's very important for us to know that the, the government will, ab, will uphold our moral values. Otherwise, we're not ready to, to fight for it. So the morals is very important for us. And it's against our interest because we know that when there are civilian casualties, all the pressure is on Israel. So Israel is not targeting civilians. It's targeting these military objectives. But yes. What the Hamas does, it uses the civilians, and it has explained its strategy. It's a strategy. It uses the civilians. It operates from within these civilian places. It doesn't enable civilians that even want to leave to leave. It threatens them, it fires against them, or it persuades them to stay. And then it's a win-win for the Hamas, because then there are two options. Either Israel still goes ahead and attacks this military infrastructure, and this leads to civilian casualties, and by the law this is not unlawful yes there's an you are allowed to a target uh, to to carry out an attack even if you know that civilians might be killed okay the 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 principle uh, the the legal principle is uh, that of proportionality it has to be this collateral this expected collateral harm to civilians must not be excessive in relation to the military advantage but even if it's legal we know that it will be not considered legitimate so what we have is two options either we we know we would be criticized, but never but nevertheless go ahead and attack these uh, military uh, targets and there are civilian casualties. And again, who's a civilian? And of course the numbers are always exaggerated. And everybody is a civilian, even if it's Hamas operatives, they don't make the differentiation. All the children, the always numbers of children, children is there could be a 15, 16, 17-year-old combatant fighting on behalf of the Hamas, but they're all children. So the numbers we don't know also, we don't have a way to check them. They are exaggerated, but nevertheless, they are civilian casualties. I am not saying that they aren't. So either Israel goes ahead or and uh, gets all this criticism and push and pressure to stop, or it doesn't attack, it refrains because of this potential pressure, and then the Hamas retains its military capability. So again, either the Hamas retains its military capability because we don't attack, or if we attack, then Hamas re- gets, all this uh, international pressure all on the side of Israel, almost no pressure on the Hamas to surrender, for example. Um, and uh, and we know that uh, the time is running out and that Israel will be pressurized until it has to stop with the Hamas continuing to retain its capabilities. And then in the end of the game, what we will have is the Hamas will continue to be there. Israel will be perceived as weak, our other enemies will come in. And this could, again, be potentially even the end of the state of Israel, but definitely the end of any prospects of a peaceful resolution of the conflict. So here I'll stop and open for questions.
0: Thanks, Kina. If I can go go first and just ask you kind of bringing us up to up to date and yesterday, today, we're We're on the cusp of what's happening around the hospitals in in Gaza. Just explain kind of maybe kind of in a little bit more detail kind of the level of of uh, decision making that goes on within the military and and practically what can be done kind of to uh, to alleviate and remove the the genuine civilians from that area before an attack can take place.
1: So hospital. Again, a hospital uh, is a, has a, a special protection under the laws of war or IHL uh, but it doesn't have complete immunity from attack. It, the, the, the law says that um you can't if you if the hospital is used by the military of the other side, it could be attacked, but it has you have to give a specific warning to the enemy to stop such use. But if it continues, then it becomes again a legitimate military objective, a legitimate military target. This is on the distinction part. You still have, of course, the issue of proportionality, because as I said, um, you always have to do the balance between the expected harm to civilians and the expected uh, military advantage from the attack. And here, the proportionality analysis is, of course, very difficult with a hospital because many civilians would be harmed. Uh, which makes it difficult to uh, uh, be uh, proportionate under the law, but more difficult even because if the military advantage is huge, let's say the the enemy had an atomic a uh, 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 nuclear weapon in the hospital, okay, that is threatening you, so the military advantage would be huge. Um, so maybe anything would be proportionate, or even many casualties would be proportionate. I'm just giving an extreme. It's not the that's happening, I'm just, it, it, theoretically, that could be the case. Um, so so it could be proportionate, it really depends what is the level of the military advantage, what is there, how, how what level of harm will, will, the, will it create to the Hamas, uh, will, it, will it prevent it from any mili- any continuation of the conflict, for example, that's the military advantage, I don't know the answer. That has to be weighed, Again, what is the collateral harm to civilians? So here the idea is that to minimize it, you also have an obligation to take precautions, to minimize harm to civilians, feasible precautions. But beyond that, there's an interest. You want the least harm to civilians in order to enter into the proportionality. But then we know that even if legally we would deem it proportionate and maybe if any other country would do it, it would be considered proportionate. Then there's the issue of legitimacy, and the, it would be very difficult. The pictures, and again, the pictures don't always are not always true. Sometimes they are fake. You know, there are bodies that have been moving. We know that there's a lot of fake, also. But even when it's real, uh, the legitimacy, we as it is, Israel is of course they criticized and they, and they legitimized um, for many years. <laughs> now we are seeing the peak. Um, so uh, it, it would be very difficult, and then again. There's these strategic considerations whether um, whether a, 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 the impact on the legitimacy of either would be such that it's a, won't a, it won't, won't be worthwhile to, to carry this attack for strategic re- reasons, not only for legal reasons. Uh, so again, this is the decision making that I guess is being conducted. Um, and what I'm seeing the moment is that many attempts to evacuate the hospital to find a, a alternative a, a, a arrangements, a, for the care of the the people that need the the medical care um but again, the decision eventually will be we'll have the legal component but we'll have also the strategic component which takes into account the legitimacy aspects of it
0: one of the other accusations against Israel is the idea of of collective punishment, um, both in terms of the bom- bombing and in terms of the kind of the, the closures as well. How would you respond to those allegations?
1: Collective punishment is, is, uh, is when you are punishing the civilians for something that the enemy did. When the aim of the of the action is to punish the civilians. Uh, while what Israel is doing is that it is aiming at the Hamas military infrastructure. The civilians are harmed, but this is again, this is the. Uh, I'm sorry about the term; it sounds very insensitive, but that's the legal term. This is a collateral harm. This is this is not the aim of the of the object. Again, from Israel's point of view, if it could operate in the Gaza Strip and eliminate the no. Hamas military capability without harming any civilian, that would be the best uh, solution, uh, morally, legally, and uh, of course for our interests. There wouldn't be any pressure. We could continue uh, uh, until we we really eliminated uh, every last Hamas uh, fighter. But uh, um, the, the, the problem is that that's, Impossible to do, but it's not collective punishment when the idea is not you're not targeting the civilians, we're not aiming at the civilians, we don't want the civilians to suffer. Um, and the fact that the civilians are suffering is because of this strategy, this win win strategy of the Hamas of using the civilians. It's even said so that this is the idea that these civilians are uh, sacrificing their lives, or may, maybe better say, Hamas is sacrificing their lives in order to uh, reach the, the final uh, solution, the final goal of uh, the, the, the destruction of the state of Israel, maybe of Jews around the world, because part of it is also the whole world is now getting engulfed into this uh, anti-Israel and anti-Jewish sentiment. So, So it's even wider than what is happening in Israel.
0: Could you please talk about how the legal process impacts the targeting process? How does the IDF ensure its decisions are legal?
1: So I'm not there from 2009, so I don't know exactly what's happening now. I know in general, we have legal advisors uh, from the division level up uh, that are uh, working in shift 24 seven. So it's around the clock. Um, And this means that uh, any decision, including on targeting and other operational decisions, uh, from the, again, from the division level up, division level, uh, 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 general command level and the um, uh, chief of staff level, At the government level, you have legal advisors there eh, advising on the legality of specific eh, targets, of specific measures and means uh, or practices. Um, Now, if the legal advisor would say that something is not legal, you can't do it. So the commander has to accept that. Eh, And the only way then is to go to the commander Commanders, commander, and to the legal advisors, commanders, to go up to the, let's say, the um, uh, if it's the, the division legal advisor to the legal advisor of the next level and the legal advisor uh, until you get to the attorney general, um, to to discuss when there's when there's a disagreement, but you can't just overrule the legal advisor. In most cases, it's but it's not black and white. Usually, it's more a question of uh, deliberations and taking into account these considerations, and uh, um, so so it's a, it's a, usually this is the process, and eventually the decision, let's say on proportionality, is the decision of the military commander. Uh, that's the law. Actually. The reasonable military commander, legal advisor can give advice, but eventually it's not a legal decision; it's a decision of the commander.
0: To follow up say there is a hamas military commander in a building with 20 civilians what is the thinking behind that is there a process or a formula
1: well it's very rare that the hamas commander would be there on his own um yeah. like like in the Jibalia case what was not wasn't mentioned sometimes in the media it wasn't just uh, one of the commanders of hamas it was also dozens of hamas operatives these are all part of the of the target okay so it's a uh, and they have to be counted as such and not as civilians. Okay, So um, so then the question is, OK, you have a commander with, say, 20 of his uh, men, and you have uh, 20 civilians. Uh, would that be proportional or not? It, there's no answer. There's no clear-cut formula. Um, it uh, depends on the circumstances, on the level of the threat, uh, on uh, the importance of the target. And eventually, again, it's a decision of the commander. But the fact that civilians might be killed even the same number of civilians to the number of operatives, even in some circumstances, more civilians, if it's a very important a, a military target, that isn't necessarily disproportionate. Uh, first of all, the law also gives the, uh, the more weight to the military advantage, because only if the uh, collateral damage, the expected collateral damage to civilians is excessive in relation to the military advantage, then it would be disproportionate. Uh, but in general, if you look also at other conflicts in densely populated areas, um, uh, usually the the it's you have more civilians usually killed than the than operatives uh, and then it doesn't necessarily uh, mean that uh, this is uh, uh, disproportionate. And again, it is also the question that you don't really know the numbers because the numbers are exaggerated, and the numbers don't make any differentiation between civilians and combatants on the other side. Everybody is counted as a civilian, so um, so it's also very difficult to judge uh, during the conflict and even after the conflict, the figures are always twisted. And also, what's important to know is that it's not the result, because sometimes civilians might be killed that were not expected. You thought that the building was empty and there were people there, or you thought that you're bombing a certain part of the of let's say of the web of um, of tunnels. And they booby-trapped it, and a building on the other side suddenly collapses that you couldn't expect that to happen. So sometimes also the harm to civilians is not expected. And, and, the, and again, it's not a, you can't use the benefit of hindsight when you do the evaluation. You have to look at what the reasonable commander could expect at the time of making the decision. the decision according to what he could know at that time.
0: when you were involved in oslo accord deliberations we saw a shift from fatah in their belief on the existence of israel where can we get to with hamas in 1988 they declared they were against the existence of both jews and israel do you see any chance of hamas shifting a second question to follow that what does the governance of gaza look like next um i think
1: with regard to the first question I think the Hamas didn't change its uh, basic uh, tenets that what it's it's after is uh, uh, the destruction of the state of Israel. It's also a religious idea of this, uh, the whole land of Israel is a wakf land, it's holy to the Muslims, and they can't even accept it uh, for religious reasons, the existence of the state of Israel. You know, when religious is involved, everything becomes much more difficult. Um, but I think there was a misconception in Israel. Uh, we paid very... Highly, was it misconception that Hamas might be becoming more pragmatic? That because it is the de facto government in the Gaza Strip, that maybe by uh, uh, if we um, uh, improve the economy, we allow more workers from Gaza in Israel. We uh, we let in money, in, uh, a lot of money to the uh, to the to the Gaza Strip. It went to the Hamas to build infrastructure. Talking maybe about about. Uh, um, uh, areas, industrial areas, common industrial areas and commercial areas, by the way, one of those murdered was one of the people that uh, Lipshteyn, of Eliel Lipstein, that was promoting these kinds of ideas. Many of those murdered, by the way, and kidnapped and tortured were in the peace camp, were, were always worrying about the rights of Gazans, taking Gazans, driving Gazans to uh, people from Gaza to the hospitals in Israel. This was um, a, a big blow for the peace camp, also personally, not only to the idea. Um, but, uh, um, and I think this idea, this blew up in our face. Okay, uh, so uh, I think what we saw on the 7th of October again, if it was just the fact that they would manage to enter and kill soldiers and maybe even kill civilians and kidnap soldiers and civilians, I would say, wow, well, I mean, they're much stronger than we think, but but the level of cruelty, it was also planned. I mean, we see that this was uh, the directive that people got to enter and torture and rape and and and, and, and mutilate and then behead, um, this means that the, that we are confused there's no 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 chance of the Hamas ever accepting the existence of the state of Israel or becoming more moderate. Um, and this brings the question of who? Okay, if not the Hamas, so that's why as long as the Hamas is there, no choice, no chance. If the Hamas is gone, again, the Hamas is now very popular. So the Palestinian people like the Hamas, they like this idea. It's it's that's why I said if Israel is not very, very strong and uh, accepted that there's no way of getting rid of Israel, so it's better for us to just accept that it is here, not accept it as the Jewish, the land of the Jewish people, that they will never accept, I think, maybe very few of them. But even just to accept that Israel has a right to exist and, uh, and will uh, near the Palestinian state. I think at the moment, a very small minority of Palestinians accept that. Um, but if we win the war, or at least if Hamas loses, and, um, and uh, if the international community also gets involved and maybe also with the Arab uh, moderate countries that also I know think that the Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood are uh, a very, a evil presence and the Hamas acted like ISIS and it had even booklets of ISIS, this is ISIS. Uh, um, I think maybe maybe in the long run, because there are moderate Palestinians, I have Palestinian friends, Um, in the long run, maybe something can be done, but this is a process, it will take years. Also from the Israeli side to build any kind of trust and the trust would always be very limited. We'll always need to retain security uh, uh, guarantees, and uh, uh, but um, so it's very difficult to say. And in the shorter run, you asked about the five years. Again, I think we need the international community also to be involved. Egypt, Saudi, maybe of course the US, maybe the UK and Europe um, uh, to 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 do some kind of reconstruction that will uh, that will create something new. Something new, and I'm talking about something new, is also something new, for example, without educating children, that that what they're supposed to do is to go and kill Jews. Um, That's the new thing that has to be there. Um, It's a challenge.
0: If I can ask you a couple more questions as well, and then if anyone else wants to jump back in for a follow-up, please, please do. I wonder, I mean, as much as the, the war is focused on the South and the Gaza Strip, we're also seeing a steady escalation from Lebanon as well. From a legal perspective, is there, because Lebanon is a sovereign state, are there different factors, criteria, when it comes to attacking there? Um, or is it is, is the criteria different, or is it the same there? Same there. Again, Israel will have a right to, if it's-
1: Attacked by the Hezbollah, it has a right to to self defense also uh, uh, against the Hezbollah fighting also if it's carried out from Lebanon um, and uh, because uh, unless Lebanon stops uh, prevents the Hamas from attacking Israel, um, I think there will be of course a lot of sensitivities. Israel is not interested in having a conflict with Lebanon, um, and uh, so the the aim would be to to limit. The um, the 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 war to Hezbollah, but of course it's very difficult because Hezbollah what? also uses civilians as human shields. Uses the has kidnapped Lebanon. Actually, um, uh, I know that the Lebanese don't want Hezbollah to enter uh, into this war, and they don't have. There's no really a, a, a conflict between Israel and the and Lebanon on uh, on. Uh, territorial issues and uh, so it's a, it's a, just the Hezbollah working as a proxy of iran uh, so it it will be very difficult to limit to limit the harm there just to to Hezbollah without having an impact also on lebanon which could destabilize this already very unstable country so that that would be a big challenge um Beyond the fact that the Hezbollah is very powerful, it could uh, it could uh, have. Uh, I mean, if it enters into the war, we we might see here uh, missiles uh, uh, hitting our strategic assets and uh, my house in Tel Aviv. I mean, we have rockets, but we have a shelter. But uh, if it's a missile from Hezbollah, I'm not sure that our shelter is enough. So uh, so this could uh, lead to uh, severe. Uh, Uh, harm and casualties in Israel. So uh, I don't know. We'll have to see. Um, It will make it, uh, of course, uh, much more dangerous as the situation is already quite dangerous. Um, But uh, we hope that uh, our allies, the U.S., but we hope maybe also the U.K., uh, would be on our side and help us um, deter and, if necessary, help us defeat uh, the Iranian proxies, including the Hezbollah.
0: As, as you mentioned, kind of the firepower of, of Hezbollah is is a lot more uh, is a lot more accurate, a lot heavier payloads. Kind of as you said, they could hit strategic targets uh, in Israel. Does that mean that, that kind of the international law supports Israel proportionally to strike back in a much more um, determined and forceful manner as well?
1: Yes, they. There's a there's a proportionality, use at bellum, what we call and use in below. So the use at bellum is the proportionality, uh, the necessity of use of force and the proportionality in comparison to the to the threat. So that's on the one level. But then when you examine the proportionality, use in below, which is examining with regard to each attack, and what is the military advantage from attacking the certain target. So of course, the 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 question of what that military asset means for the enemy is also depends on how dangerous is the enemy okay if it can use uh, this uh, weapon in a very effective way if it is uh, aiming this weapon against you these are all considerations that are relevant of course uh, in the uh, in the analysis of the um, military advantage and then that affects of course the proportionality balance
0: Thank you. And just one more for me. I mean, I, I know you've been out of the, uh, of, the of the office for uh, for a decade and and a bit more. But I wondered, in, either in your time or since, how the, the the application of international law has evolved within within the IDF. Do you think it's reached a stage that has remained the same, or is it is it changing and adapting?
1: Well, it the the. Um... In 1973, in the Yom Kippur War, the first Lebanon war, so uh, they were not, they uh, didn't have legal advisors around. In the, the first Lebanon war in the 80s, they had legal advisors to deal with uh, detainees, but not mm-hmm. more than that. So the development was really more from the 2000s, um, when the Second Intifada broke out, because it was in this Palestinian there in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, where we had legal advisors advising on law enforcement operations. So then they got used to our presence, and also in the world, it developed at the same time. The 90s, the 2000s, also in other militaries, the, the idea of legal advisors being incorporated. So this is a development ever since. I think uh, in my time already, we made sure that the legal. Uh, that the law is incorporated into the planning, into the military operational plans, into the operational commands, into the strategies themselves, not as a legal annex, but that it is already incorporated legal ideas. So it was there already. I think with time, when I was there, the older commanders, the ones that were still there from the, nine, from the 80s, they thought it was weird, the, you know, the reservists didn't understand what the legal advisors were doing there in the beginning. But uh, today, I think, or even the reservists that are already, <laughs> the next generation, are uh, already used to le- having legal advisors. I think the, the place and the role of the legal advisor is much clearer to the commanders. And it is uh, entrenched inside our system. So, uh, and we're also working uh, very closely with the US and they have, uh, of course, it's very important for them also, this uh, abiding by the by the laws of armed conflict. Um and we have very good connections with the um uh we always had, and I'm sure we still have, I know that we still have with the legal advisors in the in the military, uh, in the JAG unit in the US. Um, so 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 you have also colleagues that you can consult with.
0: Um, just one more for me, if that's all right. Just you met, you mentioned kind of the cooperation with the with the US, and I'd be keen if you could kind of Give a comparison to the way that the IDF operates this legal structure compared to US, UK, NATO forces.
1: So the the the, the other forces also have legal advisors. I think in the US it's already from the um, brigade level and in our case it's from the division level, but they're of course much bigger, <laughs> they're brigades. So, um, but, um, but again, the legal advisors, uh, we share similar views. I know that in uh, when I used to meet uh, them in uh, conferences, all the legal advisors of uh, the US and the UK and NATO and other militaries in Canada and Australia, we all had the same vocabulary uh, <laughs> and the same dilemmas. Um, uh, I think when we compare ourselves to a uh, uh, other uh, war areas, combat areas, uh, and when you look at Mosul, when you look at uh, Raqqa, Raqqa in Syria, um, these were also densely populated areas where also ISIS was operating from within civilian uh, places and using the civilians as shields, very similar to what the Hamas is doing. And there was a uh, huge uh, destruction and many people killed so i think that and this was done also by uh, the coalition forces there and also together with the forces on the ground um the local forces so i think this does show how complicated it is to fight in a very densely populated area against an enemy that uses civilians as shields um and despite it was clearly not in the interest of anybody there that civilians will be killed. I mean, the civilians were also on the side of the of the opposing side from ISIS, so it's not. Uh, and still, civilians were killed. Um, I think that, that's that's a big dilemma, and we have to also understand that in that in the case of the US, because later on the US had policies that were much more limiting, on, for example, collateral damage. Um, At Obama time, there was, I think, zero civilian casualty uh, policy, but this is a policy. It's not a legal requirement and it's easier to have this policy when the threat is far away. It's not as if uh, there were uh, enemy forces surrounding uh, Manhattan, uh, murdering uh, some uh, Manhattan families in their house. Uh, uh, youngsters in a concert in Manhattan and firing rockets at the rest of uh, of uh, New York uh, City. So uh, uh, then I think uh, um, th- this kind of policy would not be applied. Um, so uh, so yes, so, so we are facing a similar scenario of a very densely populated area with an enemy that doesn't care about the law and uses the civilian as shields and as a tactic as a strategy. And we are fighting against an enemy that is a direct threat, an imminent threat to us on a daily basis. And also has hostages that it is holding over 200 hostages, including babies. I know that there's a 10-month-old baby, but I also heard that there's a baby, we don't know, a newborn, because one of the women was pregnant and was about to give birth, so she might have given rebirth there, and children, 30 children, and elderly. Um, So this is what we are fighting. And again, what, what, what I... Expect from a uh, serious uh, media, a uh, uh, journalist is just uh, to put yourselves in our shoes and you know think what would you do? What would you expect your government to do before uh, being so very critical against Israel uh, uh, with very clear uh, uh, bottom lines of what Israel can't do without really saying what Israel can do, uh, and that I think is a little unfair.
0: Kalina, thank you for sharing your insight and thank you all for joining us.